Welcome to Serial from Farmerama. This is episode 6, Grain Futures. That's the Lost Revelers playing at the harvest party we recently hosted at E5 Bakehouse in London. And against that lovely backdrop, we've reached the end of our serial journey, an end which is, in fact, just the beginning. In this episode, we'll be revisiting some of the people we've met over the course of the series. They'll be sharing their visions for the future of grain. What needs to happen to build resilient local grain economies and what is already happening. First though, I want to pick out some of the common threads I've noticed in the conversations I've had while making this series. I think it's fair to say there's a general feeling that the industrial bread system is underpinned by a flawed logic, a logic that's damaging to people and planet. As we've heard, it's a logic of alienation. It relies on creating barriers between people in the system and between people and food. It's a logic of uniformity. It can't cope with diversity, let alone strive to promote it. It's a logic that implicitly assumes that automation is synonymous with progress and that bigger necessarily equals better. At every stage from soil to seed to flower to loaf, this logic is undermining the natural systems we depend on, our health, both physical and mental, the fabric of our communities, and the value of people's work. But just as these crises are interconnected, so are the solutions to them. Here's Andrew Whitley from Scotland the Bread. Now, when you factor in the other sort of elephant in the room, which is climate change, climate crisis, and the impact, the carbon-emitting impact of extended supply chains with big industrial processes, which are very energy-intensive, then you begin to see that there is another route, there is another way out of this, which in fact involves, in the language of the Real Bread campaign, more jobs per loaf rather than the other way around. And that's an inversion of the conventional thinking of capitalist efficiency. In this series, we've heard about a new grains movement that's based on this inversion of conventional thinking. A movement with a different logic and a different set of aspirations. It aspires to diversity instead of uniformity, from the life in the soil to the life in our guts, from the genetics of our seeds to the backgrounds of the people baking our bread. Resilience, as opposed to infinite expansion. Collaboration rather than competition. Working on a human scale, not an industrial scale. And at every stage, getting people back into the system, into the mills, onto the farms, into the bakeries and around the tables, encouraging bakers and farmers and millers and breeders and consumers to talk to each other. It's a sharing exercise and it's accepting that you have a lot to gain from being part of that feedback loop, from being part of that community and that you also have a lot to offer. Kimberly Bell from Small Food Bakery in Nottingham. A problem that they have could potentially be resolved by a solution that you hold and vice versa. And I think when marketplaces become depersonalised, when people become very detached, those conversations don't happen. And so we end up with systems that are compensating for problems that could have been very easily resolved. And the reason why this is important is simply because 
I think to create a better food system, we have to reconnect with nature and we have to reconnect with natural values. We can't continue to extract more resources than are available. We are all needing to eat from the same field, in fact. So we might as well work together to try and get the best out of that field. Kim is not talking about regressing to some quaint, harmonious vision of the past. This is about creating a more efficient bread system, a system that generates a lot less waste and takes responsibility for any waste it does create, a system that operates as more of a closed loop than a linear production line, a system that accounts for all of its impacts, including everything from people's wages and their job satisfaction, to the carbon footprint of distribution networks, to the health of our soils and the health of our bodies. And building this better, more efficient system first requires a shift in mindset. We all talk about the food system, and I think it's really hard, actually. We have perhaps an inadequate language to be able to describe it, but we talk about it as if it's other or as if it's something that's out there. And just by doing that, we're actually taking ourselves out of it. I think you can apply the same thing to the way that we're fumbling around trying to understand our position in nature right now with climate change. I can't help but feel like these discussions are often flawed because we always remove ourselves from the system before we start to imagine it or reimagine it. And I think we've done that with food. We've completely removed ourselves from the system. And then the system starts to dictate how we interact with it rather than the other way around. I think that's quite dangerous. We are the bread system. Even those of us who interact with it primarily as consumers, if you eat bread, you're part of it. But the current system tells us otherwise. It encourages us to be passive consumers and it encourages farmers and millers and bakers to be passive producers. So creating a better system is about moving from passivity to agency. In other words, it's about reclaiming food sovereignty. Again, it does just fundamentally come back to removing the barriers and our own belief systems are one of the barriers that we need to break down. And so if we can just move towards a belief we are part of the food system, then that immediately offers loads of exciting possibilities because I think everyone's voice should be in the mix. If we're going to take a kind of evolutionary metaphor for how we need to survive the coming years of climate challenge and biodiversity loss. We need to behave like a kind of evolutionary species and I think removing as many barriers to that as possible can only be helpful. I think empowerment of everybody to enjoy their food culture and to take part in it is probably one of the most important steps or a first step before we even bother about all of the detail. So how can we start to understand ourselves as part of the system? I don't think it's right to say that our food system's broken. Stephen Jacobs from Organic Farmers and Growers. I don't think ordinary people understand when you say that. Hang on, I've got food on the shelf. I'm not starving. I think it's more useful to say the food system is dislocated. And what we need to do is to put the socket back in the joint. The idea is that in order to effect that positive change, both culturally and agriculturally, you need to understand the economics as well as the ecology. Grassroots is going to be the one that will influence the policy makers. So in order to effect positive change, we need to get 
a miller and a baker talk to their farmer, and they're doing that while still running their usual business. We're not talking about some weird, massive handbrake turn. We're talking about a slow but steady and transformative process. And that you must involve people. The people who come to the bakeries, who go to the restaurants where the chefs are, who are switched on to this, have to not just be served a plate of food, they have to be given the information and they have to get excited about it. We want to have, you know, a story with our food. It just makes it all the more interesting. Ben McKinnon, founder of E5 Bakehouse in London. And it's not a sort of romance. It has, like, real impacts because we're creating more jobs, we're training more people, and we're creating more sort of micro-economies and, and micro-supply chains that I think will let us all feel more connected to the land and make us look after it better, ultimately. One of the most challenging and compelling things about making this series is that everything is so interconnected. Pick at any thread. Soil health, food poverty, climate change, job satisfaction, wheat intolerance, genetic diversity. And you realise it's entangled, conceptually and practically, with every other thread. That entanglement is the whole point. And it's one of the things that makes this new grains movement so exciting. It means that an apparently localised event, a conversation, a connection, a purchase, a gathering, a shift in thinking, all of them can spark much wider change. So let's hear about some of the organisations and individuals creating those sparks. Anne Parry is the miller at Vellinganal Watermill in West Wales. Together with her husband Andy, she produces a range of stone ground flowers. By collaborating with farmers and demonstrating that there is demand for locally grown milling wheat, Vellinganal is playing an important role in reviving the area's grain economy. Anne's experience of setting up the mill led her to establish the Welsh Grain Forum. All these conversations we've been having, it was obvious to me that the, you know we weren't alone and I was really quite inspired by the things that were going on in the States with main grains and the people who were working over in Washington State and sort of reinvigorating their grain economies really. And I thought, you know, we could, we could do this in Wales. We've got a lot of farmers who are keen to turn to regenerative agriculture and actually improve their income streams by growing crops on a mixed farm and actually being able to do this kind of thing again. We've got the universities with their research departments. There's a, there's a, lot, a lot going on, really. We could actually market a local grain. And people were doing it in little patches here and there. There's ourselves, there's another couple of mills. There were farmers who were sort of trying looking at on-farm mills or setting up peasant bakeries. And I felt we should all be talking together, really, because otherwise we were all in danger of, of reinventing the wheel. And all the infrastructure was gone. We were all very tiny and we needed to get together to work to work that out. What it basically is, is a networking group, really, so that people are actually talking to each other. And, and, and hopefully, slowly but surely, we're, we're actually getting things off the ground. Yes, yeah, so Welsh Grain Forum is a collaboration between millers, bakers, farmers, brewers, maltsters, and anyone else involved in the grain economy in Wales. That's Rupert Dunn from Tortha Tyr Peasant Bakery in South Wales. And it's trying to put all those, those actors back in touch with each other to reinvigorate the grain economy. So farmers know 
how to talk to millers and millers know how to talk to bakers and maltsters and on a basic level it's meetings of people coming together to share ideas and discuss what's happening and it's a great little forum when you come together and meet those people and gain support because if you're trying to do something different I think in Wales sometimes you're on a farm down a lane down a track somewhere and you want to grow some heritage wheat and well hey you want to talk to people about it you want to compare notes or gain inspiration it's really important that we come together to do those things yeah so that that's in a nutshell I guess what the grain forum does Scotland the Bread is a social business working to grow better grain and bake better bread. Their many initiatives include reviving heritage wheat varieties and testing them in different Scottish microclimates, engaging communities with cereal production through their Soil to Slice citizen science project, supporting the establishment of community bakeries, and milling organic heritage flour at the Balkaski Estate in Fife. Here's Andrew Whitley to explain why Scotland the Bread are starting at the start with the soil and the seed. Sorry, by the way, for the sawmill noise in the background of this clip. It's one of the many hazards of recording on a farm. Scotland the Bread is an attempt to improve grain and bread in Scotland, which has a particular problem in this regard because it's a country which grows a million tonnes of very good wheat which would be about five or six times as much as it would need to feed the entire country with bread and bread products. But it doesn't use any of that grain for that purpose or derisory quantities. So where does it go? What's it used for? Well, increasingly, unfortunately, the production of ethanol for biodiesel, for cars, feeding cars, not people, and even worse than that, arguably cheap alcohol, which not only doesn't make a contribution to dealing with Scotland's serious problems of diet-related ill health, but actually appears as a serious social problem in terms of replacing food to some extent and causing severe problems of alcoholism in certain communities, or facilitating it, shall we say. Now, some action is being taken on minimum alcohol pricing and sugar taxes and that kind of thing, but nobody's really addressing this by joining up certain obvious dots, which are... If you could get better grains grown more locally with a lower degree of intensity in terms of agricultural inputs and all their polluting and carbon-emitting consequences, then you might make a contribution simultaneously to biodiversity or landscape health, to human health by making better bread and getting it closer to the end user all in one fell swoop. And that's what we're trying to do. So we've started on the ground saying which varieties of grain, not just sort of super hybrid modern varieties that somebody's bred, which will break down in terms of their disease resistance in three or four years or five years or whatever. But actually, are there grains which perhaps used to grow in Scotland or in similar climates, which are inherently more diverse in terms of their genetics and might therefore be more resilient to be grown without the use of chemical inputs and plant protection products, pesticides, herbicides and fungicides and so on, and could be made into bread which was more digestible and more nutritious. So the proposition is less impact on the ground, uh, the, the landscape on the farming system on the soils, and a requirement for fewer slices for satisfaction, which deals with the extra potential cost it will grow if we get off the treadmill of this essential commodity market situation. 
as well as networks like the Welsh Grain Forum and organisations like Scotland the Bread, companies also have an important role to play in getting us off that commodity treadmill and helping farmers to become food producers. Hodmadods is one company working to do just that. Hodmadods was founded off the back of the Great British Beans Trial, which aimed to assess and stimulate demand for British-grown pulses. The trial was a great success, and Hodmadods now works with farmers to source British-grown pulses, seeds and grains. They're challenging assumptions about what it's possible and economical to grow in the UK. So, what's the Hodmadods vision? Here's Josiah Meldrum, one of the co-founders. So we are really keen to facilitate, enable, uh, allow to happen a, a kind of broader transition to agroecological food systems. So a move away from monocultural commodity production towards more localised, diverse food economies that are dependent on a much wider range of crops that are in themselves making a positive contribution to the ecology of the farm systems within which they're grown. That's, that's kind of the bigger picture and that that should be equitable and fair and equal and healthy and, and all of those things that I think we'd all strive for but that are not being delivered by the current food system. So how can a company like Hodmadods help to make that vision a reality? For a farmer that's producing grain on a large scale, and in East Anglia where we're based, that might be a 1,000 or a 2,000 acre farm, which has cereals in a probably quite straightforward rotation, often just wheat, 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 rape, maybe, <laughs> wheat, wheat, wheat. It's very, very difficult to break out of that. They, they are capitalised in terms of their farm business and their machinery to produce wheat in a very particular way with a very particular set of costs that allow them to sell into the commodity market, either for milling or more likely, probably, into the feed wheat market. For them to break out of that and to grow a more unusual cereal is a, a huge risk and a, and a real challenge. For a start, they haven't got the machinery to handle those small quantities. And then they also need to find a market that will reflect the extra effort and risk that they've taken in growing those crops. And we see our role as an enabler, as a facilitator. We can, we can work with a farmer uh, and help them to find a way to grow the crops on a smaller scale and also to find them a market for those, for those crops. And in terms of the help that we might be able to offer the farmer in growing it, we, we can offer some very sort of basic agronomy based on our experience and skills with those, with those crops. We can offer them help with finding seed and, and looking for varieties that, that have the kind of traits that bakers and millers and home cooks are looking for, whether that's flavour or, or protein content or milling qualities. And so we can work in partnership with the farmer to allow them to grow crops on a smaller scale that they know have an end market that reflects the effort and the risk they've taken in growing them. And that sounds kind of fairly obvious, but it's actually extraordinarily difficult to make all those pieces come together and happen. And what does it look like when it does happen? Here's Shropshire-based organic farmer Mark Lee. He came across Hodmadods about six years ago. We were growing peas at the time for feed. And anything you grow for feed is a sort of commodity because no human being is specifically interested in it. It's about what its protein level is and what it costs. And we were growing peas for animal feed. Peas are really, really hard to grow and organically is more so. And the value of those peas was in my view, not fair. And it was set by imported prices because the feed industry works on a 
certainly on a European level, if not a global level, as far as pricing is concerned. So our peas were valued at the cost of peas off a boat in, in Southampton. In desperation, trawling through Sumer and other whole food catalogues and outlets to see what we could grow. Could we grow chickpeas? Could we grow lentils for, for human consumption? Could we find something? And then I found the very young and shiny hobmadods were just starting out. They came over and we got on really well and we've grown peas for them ever since. So that took us to a position where our crops were then in packets, on shelves, being bought by real-life customers that we didn't know. Social media, of course, getting going, and those people were then tweeting about that, saying that they'd bought these peas and they really liked them. So I was able to interact with those people, which is just wonderful as a grower of something, to be thanked not only by the person that you've just sold 10 tonnes of it to, but the person who's just bought 300 grams of it was a really nice feeling. So it all builds this feeling of appreciation, which then gives you the motivation to keep going. So getting closer to our market through them has encouraged us again to look again at wheat and see whether we can do something similar in the sense of style, at least some of our wheat, much more directly and shorten the supply chain with the wheat and get the direct appreciation, hopefully, of customers rather than indirect as we are at the moment. One of the things all these initiatives are doing is building connections. As we've heard throughout the series, bringing people together, and especially people who usually work in isolation from each other, that can be a hugely powerful force for change. It was with that in mind that Kimberly Bell, founder of Small Food Bakery in Nottingham, organised the first Grain Lab, a gathering of farmers, millers, plant breeders, bakers, cooks, scientists and academics. She was inspired to do so after attending Grain Gathering, an event organised by the Bread Lab at Washington State University. Bread Lab is a project that breeds publicly available grain varieties with the goal of improving people's access to affordable, nutritious food. And I realised when I went to that conference for the first time how powerful it was when you bring people together who are passionate and who all want to pull in the same direction. Just having this sort of combination of an intense learning experience with a very convivial, social atmosphere and eating loads of great food. I know there was something so deeply moving about the whole experience and it really set my intentions going forward so one of the keynote speakers there was Dawn Woodward. Dawn Woodward is the co-founder of Evelyn's Crackers, a Toronto-based food company working to bring heritage grains to the public. And she spoke about sustainability which was a really broad topic that really spoke to me because I was thinking about how I wanted to develop my business and the direction I wanted to go and what what I was really trying to do like what was it all for and I just always remember her saying I think towards the end of her speech that we have to be more than just bakers and it just stayed with me the whole time and I just thought you know what does that mean like how can we be more than just bakers one of the ways in which I wanted to contribute was very much to bring that very emotional experience back to the UK I thought we don't have a gathering like that in the UK and then also I'd met Martin and I'd learned about the population wheat and people were starting to ring me and email me about what we were doing and they'd come across the flour being grown somewhere else and they wanted to use it in their bakeries and could we share formulas. Kim's talking about the YQ population, a genetically diverse population of wheat developed by Professor Martin Wolf. Having met Martin and learned about the benefits of population wheat, 
Kim was inspired to become a self-described ambassador for YQ. So it's a combination of the aspiration of wanting to replicate a fabulous experience like grain gathering and also wanting to bring a group of people together around the population wheat to understand and to learn a bit from Martin as I'd had the privilege to do. So the first meeting was in 2017 and it was just 50 people who I invited and they were mainly just people who had some kind of connection to Martin or connection to the population wheat and I just wanted us to have a day workshopping out ideas and learning from each other and talking about localised grain economies because that's really what the population was for. It was a way of empowering people to take back control over their bread, their flour, their grain, their seed. It was about sovereignty. And then everybody had such a nice time. Everyone was like, oh, we're going to do that again. So that gave me permission, really, to make it into a much bigger event in 2018. And then we ticketed it. We invited people from around the world to come speak about their own experiences in forming alternative grain economies. And I was very pleased to observe that most of the people who came had a very similar experience as to what I'd had when I'd gone to America, which was like deeply inspiring. It really set my intentions. And now we are... I don't know, 10 months on from the big event in 2018. And I'm already seeing all this kind of energy that was sparked by the event and the connections that were made and people coming together in small communities in the regions and building their grain economies. It's really fabulous. I just think intention is such a powerful thing, just getting people to emotionally invest in a profession or a craft or just a particular direction that they want to go in and then getting them to come together and do it together. It's just, I don't know, it's amazing how quickly we can make change and how much we can achieve in the time frame. I've been amazed, actually. Having itself been inspired by gatherings in the USA, Grain Lab has already been the catalyst for other events, such as Common Grains, which brought together Scotland-based bakers, growers, millers and activists in Fife in autumn 2019. And back in May 2019, I was lucky enough to be part of Bread as a Commons. It was a chance to think about the future of grain through the lens of the commons and the act of commoning. The event was instigated by Tommaso Ferrando, a lawyer and academic, and an expert in food as a commons-based, as opposed to a commodity-based system. And he really enjoyed being at Grain Lab. And he was very moved by everyone's enthusiasm and energy levels and then pledged to put on a further event that would serve a community specifically in the southwest. And it just so happened that looking at the delegate list from the Grain Lab, there was a lot of people from the southwest who were very engaged in these issues. We were able to convene at Fred Price's farm in Somerset, a group of 30 people who came together for a weekend just to talk about what a commons-based grain system might look like, might feel like, how we might create it. Tommaso guided our discussions with another academic, José Luis Vivero Pol. They advocate for an understanding of the commons that includes both material and immaterial resources as well as practices. Material resources could be things like grain, and immaterial resources are things like recipes. Practices include the collective management of those resources with the goal of ensuring that everyone has access to food. The practices are the doing part, the commoning, and it's through commoning, through the practice of collective management for the collective good, that resources become part of the commons. Here's Tommaso to explain more. 
So food as a commons is the recognition of the essential nature of, of food for the human beings, but also the inherent and intrinsic connection with planet and the ecological balance of, of the planet. And so it means thinking about a food system that is capable of providing for people and the planet, and actually not only providing, but also giving more than what it is extracting. So it's a food that is socially and environmentally just and affordable and is a, is a system that recognizes that sharing and cooperating are central and that competing and extracting are detrimental. So it's a, it's a different way of looking at, at food, not as, a, as an item, as an object of consumption, but as a set of social and environmental relationship and, and really like starting from that in order to, to think about what we have been doing wrong in the last, well, hundreds of years if we take into consideration the, the extractivism of the of the international food system, but in particular in the last 40, 50 years with the industrialized and highly processed uh, food system. The idea of the commons is fascinating and complicated and contested. I think it could be a hugely powerful challenge to the assumptions that underpin our current commodity-based food system. As well as provoking a lot of thought and a lot of debate, the Bread as a Commons event had at least one very concrete outcome. Somerset-based farmer Fred Price hosted the event. I left with a very clear idea that there were people in the room that wanted to bake with grain that had a provenance and had someone behind it, and that I needed people to bake with my grain to put a face to it rather than put it on a lorry. And so since all those people were in the room, it seemed very sensible just to join up and get the ball rolling. And I'm really excited to hear back from the people who are who've now formed essentially a southwest grains group and they're working towards localizing their grain economy around fred price's farm and his crops and i feel like they're gonna be an inspiration to all of us really because they're working together so successfully this collective of bakers and millers have come together with the farmer fred as the southwest grain network the network for me means i can put a face to to grain to me Grain was something you put on a lorry. Grain was a commodity. I have no control over the price of that commodity. It's set on a global market. And that means that we have to work back from that point, which inevitably means as a farmer you have to grow for yield because that's the only intervention you can make that affects profitability. So with the network, now we put a face to the product and we can start by saying, how do I as a farmer want to grow this product? How do you as a baker want to use it? And then you work backwards from there and you find out what price you need to set that works for both of you. And that's quite a different approach. And I think that it's best summed up in a phrase of of saying like, I'm now a food producer, not a commodity producer. It's a great demonstration of the power of gatherings, of coming together, of relationships to facilitate change. I get the impression as well that because the bakers have now got stronger relationship with Fred, and they've been on the farm and spent time with these, having these discussions, that actually their intentions are set quite clearly to support the economy for that localised grain. Maybe much more than they would have done if they hadn't spent that time together in that kind of convivial atmosphere. And I think what it's about, Grain Lab and the Grain as a Commons meeting, is spending time understanding other people's perspectives. And really, for a baker to understand the farming perspective, for a farmer to understand the baker's perspective, there's so much misunderstanding that can form barriers to actually moving forward. 
And that, I think that's been one of the most positive outcomes of these meetings. I think as long as we keep them convivial, joyful, with great food and lots of wine and fun, then people will always turn up and they will always have their intentions reset as a result of it. And it pulls people together in the same direction. So what does Fred, once a self-confessed yield-chasing commodity farmer, what does he now hope the future holds? Well, lots of Southwest Grain Networks. Immediately in the short term, I think we need more growers and more growers across the UK to spread the risk because local grain is different from, I think, what I'm describing, which is like human scale grain networks because we have to acknowledge that when you localise things in terms of an immediate vicinity, you increase the risk and grain is seasonal and weather dependent. So if we could increase the scope of these networks right through the UK, each of them buffers the next one in terms of quality and consistency of flour. When I look forward, the solution is not get bigger ever, and it's not competitive. So my vision is to make sure that there's always a human scale to everything and to make sure that we're always collaborative and it's to increase our impact in terms of the UK grain network by increasing the scope of of our network. So to encourage people to set up similar things all across the country and to be as supportive and sharing and open as possible. What all of these examples, as well as the many we haven't mentioned, what they show is that change is happening. And it's change based on the principles we heard about at the start of the episode. Diversity, resilience, collaboration, working on a human scale, and bringing people back into the system. There's one more principle that I think unites all of these stories. Joy. In a time of climate emergency, health crises and increasing economic inequality, it might seem frivolous and self-indulgent to invoke a word like that, but I don't think it is. I think it's crucial. What I mean by joy could also be referred to as contentment or purpose or quality of life or simply good mental health. In any case, in my experience and based on the conversations I've had, I think joy can spring from precisely the things the New Grains movement is promoting. Things like direct relationships, food that tastes good and is genuinely nourishing, feeling a sense of belonging and a sense of agency, satisfying, meaningful work. I think in our current culture, although this is changing, luckily, there's very much a narrative of you go to work and you pay your dues, you do your time, and then the rest of your free time is when you get to be you or you get to enjoy yourself. And I suppose it's been one of the most amazing transformations for me is that I, I don't see any distinction really between my work and who I am. I get to do something that I enjoy in a very tangible way, but it also makes me feel like I'm part of something or I'm just being me within a system. And I suppose it's convenient for industry to promote the other system because it creates economic units out of us. So we, you know, are going to spend a lot of money on those weekends to try and kind of compensate for the things that we feel we're owed or the things we should be enjoying. 
it keeps the wheels turning, the economic wheels turning. And the more you look into it, the more ridiculous the whole thing seems. It's all about creating kind of marginal gains for someone else at the end of the day. I suppose that probably sounds a bit highfalutin for a conversation about bread and bakeries, but it really is political, I think, even if you don't want it to be. An industrial bread system, an industrial food system, can't give us what we need. It can't have the capacity to respect baking as a craft and bakers as craftspeople. It can't allow dough the time it needs to ferment properly. It can't enable us to buy our bread directly from the people who bake it. It can't help farmers to have meaningful connections with the people who buy their grain or mill it, let alone with the people who eventually eat it. All this talk of diversity, of meaningful connections, of working on a human scale and respecting people's work, I know it might all seem a bit naive, a bit utopian, but I think there's a compelling argument in its favour. In short, there is no alternative. In the face of climate change, the industrial bread system cannot remain resilient. Any system that relies on alienation, on creating physical and emotional distance between the actors within it, on a logic of ever greater uniformity, on the belief that infinite growth is both possible and desirable, in an age of climate crisis, any system based on those principles is increasingly vulnerable. And to come back to joy for a moment, I also think it's crucial to counter the narrative that mitigating and adapting to climate change can only mean hardship, sacrifice, grinning and bearing it. It doesn't have to be like that, and it shouldn't be like that. In making this series, I've encountered so much joy. It's energising. So maybe the new grains movement can lead the way for a wider change in our food system, and in other systems as well. Not just in the UK, but around the world. One of the biggest things that we need is sharing of information. That's farmer, miller and mill designer Fintan Keenan. And that's going to have to come from the bottom up. It's not going to come from the top down. So we're going to have to have these grassroots structures in order to be able to re-establish local grain economies, which is really exciting. And especially, I believe, with the new generation of farmers. You see people like Fred Price, you see Oscar here at Dutch's Farms, you see Farmer George, and when you speak to them, that enthusiasm is just like, boom! You know, it's incredible. And if we can get so many people like that fired up, who are interested in it, that's going to be contagious. And that's what's going to help grow this local economies. It's not just here, it's not just regional. We have an amazing opportunity in terms of a global collaboration. I think the sharing of information is something that is happening from Australia to the States to Argentina to here in Europe, you know, and it's incredible. And I think with the drive and enthusiasm of that, this will happen. You know, it's not a question of how can we make it happen. It's already started. The wheels are in motion, but we need to gear up. It, it needs to happen a little bit faster. Some people think, oh, you know, you just chill out a little bit. But it's, I, I, I don't think we have the time to chill out. I think we need to get this rolling now as fast as possible. This series does not claim to be a comprehensive record of everything that's happening in the grain world at the moment. It can't be. And the point is, that's exciting. I've been struck by just how much is going on and how much energy there is. There's a real sense of possibility in the air, of momentum and shared purpose. 
There are a lot of reasons to feel pessimistic at the moment. But in this new grains movement, I've found optimism, clear-sightedness, and generosity. So if anything you've heard in this series catches your interest, I'd urge you to follow it up, to reach out, to get involved. It might be as simple as asking a question about the next loaf of bread you buy, how it was made, or where the ingredients come from. It might mean learning to bake your own bread and discovering the joy of that process. It might mean asking your local school or your local care home to serve real bread. It might mean emailing the producers of Bake Off, asking them to do a segment on flour. It might mean getting together with other people to set up a community bakery. All of these acts have knock-on effects. They have the potential to ripple outwards. Getting involved could also start with spreading the word about good bread. And on that note, we're going to finish with a collective commitment recorded at our harvest party in Nottingham in November 2019. It's called the Flower Ambassador Pledge, and it was written by Amy Halloran, a writer, teacher and cook based in upstate New York. We've put the words of the pledge in the show notes, so if you like, join in at home. We'll just go line by line. The Flower Ambassador Pledge. I do solemnly, happily swear. I do solemnly, happily swear that I am going to tell everyone I see that I am going to tell everyone I see that it's okay to love flour. That it's okay to love flour. Bread is not poison. Bread is not poison. Invisibility is poison. Invisibility. I will try to make visible all the labor in bread. I will try to make visible all the labor in bread. From seed to mill, from mill to loaf. From seed to mill, from mill to loaf. Mills are the levers farmers need to get more interesting grains in the ground. Mills are the levers farmers need to get more interesting grains in the ground. And on our tables. possible thanks to generous support from the Roddick Foundation. To hear the rest of the series, subscribe to Farmerama via your favourite podcast app, SoundCloud or farmerama.co. If you've enjoyed Serial, please do spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Serial was produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's contributed to Serial, both those we've heard from 
and those who've helped in other ways. In this episode, we heard from Andrew Whitley, Kimberly Bell, Stephen Jacobs, Ben McKinnon, Anne Parry, Rupert Dunn, Josiah Meldrum, Mark Lee, Tommaso Ferrando, Fred Price, and Fintan Keenan. Thanks also to Richard Moore and Caitlin Roberts from The Lost Revelers for the music we heard at the start of the episode. And last but not least, thank you for joining us on this journey.